It was basically just a bunch of random words that rhymed. There was little to no plot at all and zero character development. Many characters didn't even have names. Most were both introduced and dismissed within the same sentence. In addition, they didn't actually hop on pop until about two-thirds of the way through the book, and when they did, the author never explains why it was happening or even bother with any of the implications of the character's actions. This event seemed to be no more meaningful to the story than any other line or phrase in the book. Could have just as easily been called Pat sat on a bat. And what's with all the pictures? Great authors are supposed to draw pictures with their words. The fact that this book relies so heavily on doodles to get its point across is an indictment of the author's storytelling abilities. In conclusion, this book reads as if it was intended for an infant child. One out of ten, would not read again, do not recommend. Taylor Stokes reading a one-star Amazon review of the Dr. Seuss classic Hop on Pop. The funniest thing about that review is not, in fact, its call for an end to pictures. It's that the anger against Hop on Pop does not end with disgruntled Amazon user Shoydis. Or maybe it's Shoydis. I don't know. Just want to give him the proper credit. But no, Seuss's book about leaping on top of your dad has actually caused some real-world issues. In 2014, the Toronto Public Library received a formal request to remove the book from its shelves because it, quote, encouraged children to use violence against their fathers. In exchange for exposing the world to such a thing, the complaint asked the library issue a formal apology and, you know, pay for the damages resulting from the book. None of those things came about, but they made headlines and sparked a new debate about an age-old issue. Excuse me from transitioning so quickly from talk of hop on pop to this serious sounding phrase, but the censorship of literature has been a part of our society for centuries. For as long as there have been innovative envelope pushing writers, whether they be writing for children or adults, there have been people trying to suppress them. This week, September 25th to October 1st, is actually Banned Books Week. And one of our stories in this episode by me, Mike Larigo, is about which of your favorite novels have come under fire, the kind of things that land them there, and whether taking one side of this issue is as easy as it sounds. And, because we really like to shake things up from segment to segment on this show, we'll also be exploring how the rap duo, Outkast, influenced the modern-day Atlanta epicenter of the genre, as well as give you an art review from the grand reopening of the National Gallery's East Building. There will be a bit of cursing, there will be classical music, and because fall has arrived, there will be some froggy voices. This is episode two of The Dive. Welcome back. I took an iSeries course called Forbidden Books, Censorship of Children's and Young Adult Literature. And I really enjoyed the class. The teacher was smart, the discussion was often lively, and I got to reread some good books from my youth. Like, really good books. As it turns out, a ton of children's classics have come under fire for what parents see as inappropriate material. The titles we studied included Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Bridge to Terabithia, Slaughterhouse-Five, The Color Purple. Our final assignment was to essentially take one of these controversial young adult books read it, study it in depth, and then decide whether or not we would ban it if we were in a position to do so. I chose to read the book Forever by Judy Bloom, mostly because I had never read it before. 
Not the greatest decision I've ever made. In fact, maybe the worst. This is the Amazon plot of the book Forever by Judy Bloom, as provided by Taylor Stokes. Catherine and Michael are in love, and Catherine knows it's forever, especially after she loses her virginity to him. But when they're separated for the summer, she begins to have feelings for another boy. What does this say about her love for Michael? And what does forever mean anyway? Is this the love of a lifetime or the very beginning of a lifetime of love? Okay, this book is crazy. I think it's important to say that throughout the course, I had definitely been leaning on the side of like, let kids read what they want. It helps them grow. Creativity, you know. But after sitting in my dorm room and knocking out forever in the course of one night, not the greatest of time management, I essentially sat down on my laptop and in a much longer, more eloquent way, wrote, ban the hell out of this shit. I really felt strongly that no one should read it. Why did I say this? I don't know. The book was just gross. It was unnecessarily vulgar and at times wildly uncomfortable. Its plot really held nothing of value in my eyes, just some extremely weird teenage sex scenes and dialogue that made me want to stop reading forever. Like, there's a scene in this book where this guy Michael, bringing shame to all Michaels, just randomly names his penis Ralph. Like, what is that? To be fair, the book has been touted as being realistic and progressive and all that stuff, but I just didn't find it that way. And that's just me. I thought it was unforgiving and drastic and awful. I didn't understand then, and I still don't really know, why it affected me so much. Books just kind of do that. And I've been thinking more and more about book censorship, especially now that we're in the middle of the Library of Congress's Banned Books Week, and I wanted to explore the topic a bit more. So I sat down with a professor of that iSeries course that led me straight into Judy Bloom's dark labyrinth of teenage sex. Dr. Wayne Slater was a fantastic professor, uh, and I spoke to him earlier this week. Here's our conversation. I mean, what do you think are some of, like, you know, just, like, to give people sense, what do you think are some of the most surprising titles that have been been banned in the U.S.? It seems to me that the the one that, that consistently surprises me is Huckleberry Finn. And it's a language issue, mainly. And it's an issue that a lot of people do not necessarily agree about, obviously. Uh, it's those kinds of works where obviously we don't want to offend people, but at the same time, I'm not so sure we rewrite history yeah. because we can place it in context and help people understand. And especially if you're an English teacher, and I was a former English teacher, Jim is one of the most noble characters in literature. And it was a term used at the time, right. um, and it's... The censorship piece, I just, I just don't think it works there. So it's, it's those kinds of issues that, uh, that consistently surprise me. I understand that some parents are upset, and in my particular point of view, parents have a right to censor uh, what their what their minor children are reading, and so on and so forth. But it's when the government begins doing it and implementing laws that apply to everybody, and that hasn't happened without fan, uh, that's the problem, and that's part of the tension I think we talked about in um, Forbidden Books. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one thing I, I definitely remember is, you know, books, a lot of books have kind of been banned for language, and, you know, 
sexual content, but there was also books, like, I remember reading Bridge to Terabithia, and, I mean, our class was about middle school and young adult literature, but, right. I mean, that book, people have a problem with it just because, like, it has some pretty sad scenes, and it kind of deals with death, and, like, books are banned for that reason, too, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, that's true, and that's something that we we changed a part of the emphasis on the course to address that issue, and uh, we just used this on Tuesday, so this is fresh off the press. Um, those are educational testing service guidelines for creating uh, assessments and learning, and that's just the abbreviated uh, version of the document. Uh, for our national assessments, and basically it lists an incredible number of topic areas yes. that are considered uh, sensitive and problematic and to be avoided. And again, Michael, I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, I don't want to trigger any bad behaviors. But when you look at the list of taboo topics Is and dancing. so forth, Dancing. I mean, yeah. we're talking about essentially the topics that cover life. Right. And and again, uh, panels can be sensitive. We can be concerned about things, especially on assessments. We want students to achieve. Uh, we want them to have optimal opportunity to show what they know. But a number of thinkers believe that we have arrived at the level of overkill. We're over-purging. You, a lot of the class is, uh, is students kind of weighing in with their opinions on books after we read them. Yes. Um, how do you find, in, you know, in your time teaching the course, how do you find students lean? Do you think students lean more towards, like, let them, you know, let them read? Do I think we necessarily fundamentally change hearts and minds in relation to preconceived notions? Probably not. But that's not really the goal of the course. Um, the goal is to inform, and especially the idea of defending our First Amendment rights. Um, in no way are we adv advocating um, uh, the promotion of uh, violent material or child pornography or anything like that. But the real concern is the idea of groups attempting to use the government to impose their points of view on everyone else. And it seems to me the vast majority of the students, uh, in relation to their papers and their essay response, understand that. They have no problem whatsoever, if you will, uh, in censoring materials for their own children. Yeah. They understand that, yeah. absolutely. But they also realize the challenge in doing that. Um, you may be protecting your little daughter, but when she goes over and plays with her next-door neighbor with an iPad and so on and so forth, there's this amazing range of material that's available there. And uh, I think very much a part of the discussion in class, at least I hope this is part of the focus, is let's, let's have a healthy discussion about the issues here. And one of the most important things, it seems to me, that can happen is that parents understand that there's an open forum at home. You walk in on your middle school son, and you just happen to find a Playboy under his pillow. That may happen, whatever. But with the digital version, most likely yeah. it, won't be, it won't be under his pillow anymore, right? Maybe, but whatever. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about how Hollywood uses 
sex to sell things. Let's watch how people are victimized in relation to these domains. Um, in some important ways, some censorship groups and the whole notion of censorship has really been quite productive for business interests in this country that like make a lot of money selling material that is totally targeted to a group based on fantasy and so on and so forth and doesn't reflect reality whatsoever. For the case study, uh, the, the final assignment in your class, I, uh, I had been like very anti-censorship the entire course and then I read Judy Bloom's Forever for the case study. <laughs> And I said, ban it. Just ban it. <laughs> How do you find that book affects students in your class? I find Judy Bloom a very interesting author in that she has been dubbed the, the queen of kitty porn and so on and so forth. Okay, do I believe in censoring Judy Bloom? Probably not. At the same time, are there moments when I think that Judy Bloom, as an author, understands exactly what she's doing? Um, I don't. I'm not always convinced she's on this noble mission, right? Right. To to inform uh, uh, the middle school girls and so on and so forth. So when I look at her website and so on and so forth. I have a question of motives, but you really can't question motives. It's, okay, she says she's doing what she's doing, to be honest. And there is a certain, there's a certain point there. Um, I think of my family upbringing. I was very conservative. Uh, the whole idea that, you know, to, to, protect, to protect you from the real world. Well, uh, we sort of had this discussion in class. Innocence isn't necessarily a virtue. Innocence can kill you. Yeah. Right. And it's hitting that, that, that balance where you, you inform kids and help them to understand things without sensationalizing and so forth and just make it a, national, a natural part of life. And I think probably in the United States we've had more tension in this area than, say, Western Europe yeah. and so on and so forth. So, um, we get very interesting responses to that book. Um, I'd say half the class would want it banned, the other class. I wish I'd read this. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of touched on this, but my last question is kind of about the future. seems like we're going in a direction where PC culture is more and more prevalent and people are saying... I have problems with this and this and this and this, and they feel more comfortable saying what they take issue with. Do you think this could lead to more um, literature censorship? I think very definitely. Um, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the PC argument. When you look at that particular volume published by ETS on test items and so on and so forth, um, it's pretty hard to argue that various aspects of political correctness, essentially it has really gone over the top on some issues and so on and so forth. At the same time, the use of language to denigrate, uh, to attack and so on and so forth, 
it's really a delicate balance. And I know we have freedom of speech. I think in so many ways we have overreacted. Do I have a perfect solution for this? No, I don't. And I don't think most people do. But I, I notice that particular groups uh, in our country have stigmatized certain words and certain perspectives and so on and so forth. Um, ultimately, I see that as a form of censorship. In looking at the, the list of very questionable and challenged topic areas there, if I were an author writing a book and I happened to be aware of what the testing guidelines were and I wanted to sell my book and I wanted students and schools to read it and so on and so forth, I would be very aware of those standards. And it seems to me it would have a definite chilling, potential chilling effect on what I wrote. And I think that's a problem. Michael Arrigo with Dr. Wayne Slater. Our next story comes from art critic Evan Berkowitz on the National Gallery's reopening of its East Building. When German artist Thomas DeMond wanted to photograph the first rays of morning sun piercing through dense forest and dappling the dewy leaves within, he stayed indoors and got out a 10,000 watt electric bulb. He built a network of complex metal armatures and lined them with handmade paper leaves, each meticulously folded down the middle to create a naturalistic effect that fools for a moment but hints that something is amiss. DeMond then flooded his massive studio maquette with carefully angled warm light and made a photograph. Titled Clearing, the 2003 print measures more than 6 by 16 feet and gives Photography Reinvented, one of three exhibitions premiering September 30th as the National Gallery's East Building reopens, its signature image. Then, the photo snapped and the faux realistic moment captured, DeMond took his massive, lovingly made model forest and destroyed it. The destructive act is one at odds with the modern notion of museum installation, where an artwork is only worthwhile if it can be interacted with, only lovely if it does well on Instagram. Museums like the Renwick Gallery would have a field day had the model forest been the final work, an idyllic landscape visitors themselves could actually walk through. Sure, this sort of work would still comment on the fleeting nature of nature and the artificiality of nostalgic images, even those of a cool, misty forest, sparkling emerald, in the rising sun. But more likely, it would feed that nostalgia and our modern obsession with it. The wider theme would be missed in favor of prime selfies. To destroy the maquette, leaving distant, fleeting photographic evidence as its only remnant, shows extreme and refreshing artistic discipline. In its subtlety, it minimizes not only the true forest of our gemutlichkeit-laden fantasies, but soberly satirizes the false one DeMond himself created. This sort of restraint and subtlety is exactly what the American public tends to hate about modern art.
Why can't we encounter the magical forest of our media-manipulated daydreams? Why can't we mainline nostalgia through the forearm without having to step in front of a work and actually think? Why must we trifle with critical thought beyond raw, base, primal experience? Sometimes, as shows like Wonder have wholly demonstrated, we can. Unabstracted works, obvious representation, allow us to pretend we understand them by looking at the surface. Similarly, immersive, awe-inspiring works, even when they do go deeper, allow us to pretend we understand simply by interacting. These works can be amazing, often intriguing as well, but you can't have your pudding if you don't eat your meat. It is this sort of restraint, subtlety, and smart, calculated curation that gives the New East Building writ large its most decisive victory. The order of movements unfolds effortlessly in the reorganized permanent collection galleries. Cubism and Fauvism face off from opposing walls, yet anchored by two unifying busts near center. Picasso asks a lilting question in wondrous paint in another gallery, and the Brocks hanging nearby answer him. German Expressionism has a room of its own, and American artists Bellows and Hopper gracefully convey visitors across the Atlantic. The rooms on minimalism are masterful, those on abstract expressionism sublime. No single piece or place is the blockbuster, accepting that each on its own represents an acme in its own genre. Instead, they coalesce to create a journey through modern art history that provides visitors a stunningly complete education on its chronology and chief figures. It is no small feat, and it is achieved fantastically. Even as the building, an inscrutable trapezoid thanks to the best laid plans of Pierre L'Enfant is complex, the meandering a visitor does, left to his or her own devices, is painless. More strikingly, from almost any heading, the lessons come through loud and clear. At a press preview September 27th, the gallery's modern art curator hazarded a guess that the number of paths through the galleries is 12 factorial. That's more than 479 million possibilities. But if the place is labyrinthine, it is not a maze-like or stressful one dotted with dead ends and garden paths. Instead, it is the tranquil sort that guides walkers down an elbow-curving, oxbow-laden journey that is tranquil and cathartic. It forces you nowhere, and where guidelines exist, they are subtle, disciplined, and restrained. The deeper lessons, upon closer look, reveal the true majesty. Like the little paper leaves, the curatorial undercurrent is unassuming enough to be missed, but marvelously rich when discovered. If the lessons about modern art are the meat, then the building, glorious and updated, is the pudding. The East Building's other new features, from angular staircases that playfully reference I.M. Pei's timeless architecture to a besculptured roof terrace high above Washington, squarely place it in the pantheon of modern museums. But rather than go the full way of that modern museum attitude with blockbuster shows and immersive artworks that make critical thought optional, the National Gallery shows restraint. It is subtle in its prompts, unassuming when presenting a masterwork. It is calculated, it is clear, and it is smart. With beautiful architecture updated for the now, it invites visitors to take in the nation's art collection. Then, it asks them to uphold their half of the bargain. That review is by Evan Berkowitz. He wants everyone to know that his voice doesn't always sound that way. Our last segment on this episode is a discussion between John Powers and Patrick Basler about one rap duo's legacy. 
Well, she got a hottie's body, but it added to his party. When I met her at a party, she was hardly acting on it. I said, Charlie, would you come? She said, pardon me, are you balling? I said, darling, you sound like a prostitute. Pause Thank you, John. I am Patrick Bassler, one of the staff writers for DBK Diversions. And over the past year, I've written an ungodly amount of articles about rap music. And with me is John Powers. Uh, Part-time rapper to just to pay the bills on the side. Uh, but mostly, uh, I write for Diversions as well. And earlier this year, John wrote a story about outcasts, uh, AT aliens turning 20. That was that was that was quite a special piece to me. The first piece I wrote uh, for the Diamondback uh, diversion section, and it was interesting because AT aliens was not uh, how I got into Outcast. I don't think it's how a lot of our generation first got into Outcast. I think that sort of happened. You know, people heard "Hey Ya" in Roses. Uh, and then work backwards from there, then you get to some of the classics on Stankonia, So Fresh and So Clean, uh, you know, Miss Jackson. Uh, and then, you know, you dig deeper uh, and you realize there are some crazy albums out there, some some crazy experimentation with beats, uh, especially for their era in the 90s, uh, adding funk to them. And you realize that there are some, some hidden gems that, you know, while they weren't as present in pop culture, especially for uh, where I grew up in the suburbs of Massachusetts. Uh, but, you know, once you go digging for it, you realize there's 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 a lot of great music here. What does Italians mean 20 years later? 20 years later, um, it, it, it shows sort of the transition that has been made in, in hip hop, specifically uh, illustrated by Atlanta hip hop. I would say, when you have the Atlanta hip hop scene coming up in the early to mid nineties, uh, sort of being headlined, the charge being led by Outkast. Um, but now Atlanta rap is is much more, uh, it's, it's very different. So you have this, in the nineties, you have these humble Atlanta rappers uh, talking about their roots, talking about where they grew up, talking about the people they grew up with, uh, talking about the conditions that they lived in. They, all, they always reference the dungeon, which was this unfinished basement, uh, you know, that uh, supposedly Andre 3000 couldn't even, he had to lean over whenever he was standing in it. And this was their recording studio for their first, their first uh, major album, Southern Playlistic Cadillac Music. Um, and so you have these people talking about their real stories, uh, but then fast forward to now, um, and I suppose you could argue that, you know, it. When, when Young Thug talks about all the money he has, he's being just as real. Um, but at the same time, you know, that's not as relatable for the people of his city of Atlanta uh, to hear. So people, you know, people want to be ballers. So they hear him rapping like that and they want to sing along. Now, it's interesting because, like, I feel like for most people today, the face of Atlanta rap isn't outcast anymore. Right. Like, you have Andre 3000 and Big Boy off doing their own thing, and in Andre 3000's case, like, you know, not even really doing much of his own thing. And you have these rappers like Gucci, Young Thug, Migos, like, the new face of this new Atlanta. And they're putting out tons of music. They're putting out, you know, in two years, they're putting out as much music as Outkast put out in their entire career. And I think that the only reason rappers are able to do that in 2016 in Atlanta is because of the groundwork that Outkast laid out in the 90s. Because, I mean, you talk about uh, when Outkast won the Source Award um, in 95, and 
that you know that just sets the precedent for Atlanta as an outsider in the rap industry. And even though like the sound of Atlanta is the sound of rap today, Atlanta is still this outsider in the game. Like Young Thug is doing things that literally no one else in rap is doing. Uh, Gucci, you know, just out of prison, but his album that he just dropped is still like doesn't really sound like anything else in rap. And if you look at it in the '90s, nothing else sounded like Outkast did. Right. Yeah. No. People. People often talk about uh, just how weird uh, Outkast was when they first came up. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit more Andre 3000 than Big Boy, but both of them, you know, they were not. They were not typical uh, rappers. They were not typical gangster rappers of the '90s. And I think it's a it's a good point to bring up that you know the foundation was laid for being these hip hop outsiders because you know the context of those source awards were just. Uh, East Coast and West Coast, you know, going at it, vying for hip hop supremacy. Um, but at the same time, these young kids coming up on stage amidst a, a, a beef that, you know, that had gotten pretty bloody to that point. Um, and Andre 3000 just let everyone know that the South has something to say. And he really put them on the map. He let everyone know that, you know, they have a sound that's unique to where they're from. It, it reflects the the way they grew up and, you know, the culture they've been exposed to. And so I think that was why uh, they had such a, a big influence on, you know, on the Atlanta rap scene to this day. And it's interesting because, you know, to think Andre 3000 and Big Boy now must be like so bewildered that every rap song that's released anywhere sounds like it's straight out of Atlanta. Like, you would never know that Fetty Watts from New Jersey. You would never know that Bobby Shmurda's from New York. And you're, I mean, you're entirely right in saying that in the 90s, nothing sounded like Outkast. And I think you make the argument that even though Atlanta rap is killing it today, especially in experimentation and new sounds, nothing really quite sounds like Outkast, like at all. Like, you have New York rappers today who still just want to sound like they're Jay-Z, you still have West Coast rappers that just want to be fucking Tupac. Um, but at the end of the day, even the people who are out of Atlanta now don't sound like Outkast. Like, I can't think of a single artist where I'm like, oh, holy shit, that's Outkast right there. They're kind of still one of a kind, I think. Right. So I think what, what you had with Outkast was such an interesting mixture. Uh, you had, you know, Big Boy, sort of the, the culmination of it, Atlanta street culture at the time. Uh, you know, it was said that uh, when they were touring, once... Uh, once ATLNs had come out, they were touring in two buses. You had Big Boy's bus, that was the the smoke and chill bus, marijuana. I mean, um, to clarify for those out, for those of you out there who didn't know, yeah. and then um, to clarify, Big Boy's bus was the cigarette bus. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but then Andre 3000, uh, he you know, in, on ATLNs, he raps about you know, uh, no no uh, drugs or alcohol, so I can keep the signal clear. He takes dicks rapping very seriously, and um. You know, you have to wonder what the influence of his love life with uh, Erica Badu was there. But at the same time, that clearly influenced him uh, to such degree um, that, you know, he was not like the street. He didn't represent this street culture uh, three years after Southern Playlist at Cadillac Music came out and an album that purely represented the street culture of Atlanta. And so he made such a dramatic change. And so then you have this mixture between, you know, this introspective, uh, person who in Andre 3000 who was you know talking about uh, all these you know more complex ideas but then you have Big Boy 
who is rapping his rapping sounds like a machine gun and he's talking about you know you know maybe similar themes that had been said before but he's saying it in a new way and about a new place and so when you mix those two together i think that's why you had such a unique uh a unique combination and but at the same time that may have been uh why outcast was was destined to to split apart as soon as that happened And it's, you know, you can kind of still see that dichotomy in Outkast in the world of Atlanta rap, just not in the lyrical content. Because I think you can kind of tell, like when you hear Big Boy rapping and you hear Andre rapping, their flows are different, sure, but you can also tell like in their lyrical content, they're different. Like Andre is way more likely to go off on like a weird tangent mm-hmm. or, you know, some really strange uh, theme that Big Boy is. But if you look at like that, just that big voice, like that traditional Atlanta rapper, Andre's that like, you know, kind of like the blueprint for the Atlanta weirdo. And if you look at that, like you have guys like, you know, like even Gucci or like Pee Wee Longway or someone like that out of Atlanta today. Um, very traditional street rappers, um, but they're fun to listen to. And then you have like Young Thug or like even to a degree Future, mm-hmm. um, who are definitely pushing boundaries. And like Future's a part of Dungeon Family, which is something a lot of people forget. Right. Um, so he was right there. I mean, he has a fucking Andre. Sorry, I gotta stop swearing. He's got a, <laughs> he's got an Andre three thousand feature on Honest. Um, and I mean, Travis Scott got a, Travis Scott's not from Atlanta, but he has an Andre three thousand right. feature too. And I think you can just look at how supportive Andre and Big Boy to but how supportive Andre's been of that new like weird Atlanta scene, like Erica mm-hmm. Badu, who I will say I think knows Andre three thousand pretty intimately. Uh, agree. Agreed, yeah. Uh, uh, Erica Badu said that Andre 3000 reminds uh, her a lot of Young Thug in that way. Uh, especially, she said after that, um, after Young Thug's Jeffrey cover mm-hmm. came out, she said, Amazing Thugger reminds me of a certain ATLian I know. I think, uh, I think we all know who she would be talking about. It wasn't. It wasn't Big Boy. It was not Big Boy. It was not their son, whose name is Seven. Oddly enough, <laughs> but uh, there's definitely a serious tie between this new Atlanta and what Outkast set forth. Um, and I would not be surprised if uh, both members of Outkast start popping up on some of these projects by Atlanta rappers. But yeah, I think. I mean. I think that, you know, like you said, Andre 3000 uh, recognizes that guys like Future uh, are really just pushing the boundaries uh, of of what this this industry uh, is going to look like. He's he's really changing the landscape and he understands that, you know, the rap game has to be has to be moved forward in the way that they did it um, in the 90s. And he's seeing that happen. Perhaps again, uh, Atlanta is pushing pushing the rap game forward uh, in the in the teens of the 2000s it's uh it's sort of like history is repeating itself Oh yes, I love her like Egyptian on the description, my royal highness. So many pluses when I bust that there can't be no minus. Went from yelling. Special thanks this episode to Patrick Basler, to Taylor Stokes, Callie Kaplan, Kyle Stackpole, Evan Berkowitz, and John Powers. New episodes of the dive can be found on our SoundCloud page or online at dbknews.com. Look at jazz and wonderful team like you miss good at